Well, good evening. Good to see you so many out tonight, and trust the Lord will bless our time together in his word. We're looking at the book of James, so turn to James chapter 5. Uh, the song we just got through singing. I got up really early in the morning because uh, I really wanted to get out of there anyway for a while. And I can remember walking down Cocoa Beach. And <clears throat> for some reason, all of a sudden, I just start singing out loud the chorus of that song. And I walked for a mile, two miles, and I never stopped singing. And I walked back and never stopped singing. And I thought the people around here must think, what's with this guy? There's one thing I know that he is assured of that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's such a comforting thing to know him as your Lord and Savior. Uh, if, if you don't have Christ in your life, obviously you have no idea what I'm even talking about. Because, you know, it's his, his spirit that bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. And there's no greater joy in life than knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly the only true and living God, and he's in my life. And also, we were singing about the second coming of Christ, and it's interesting here in chapter 5, uh, this chapter focuses on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life of faith that we should be walking as we live in expectation of that day. And, you know, that's one of the topics, and I can remember as a school teacher and going to college and talking with college professors and uh, teachers of science I worked with and all these things, how who would poo-poo, you know? They would always say, well, he's been promising to do that for years, you know? He's never going to come back. And, you know, the more you sit and talk with him, the more uncomfortable they get because, you see, he came the first time, he died, he was buried, he rose again. Uh, one of the most documented historical facts in life is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet people refuse to believe things concerning his first coming. It's no wonder they're skeptical about the second. And I think the primary reason is they literally fear it. You know, the reality of the fact is Jesus Christ is coming back again. And as we get into chapter 5, you know, this is what James' concern was, is that whether they were unbelieving Jews or believing Jews, they had better focus their attention on this one blessed truth and live accordingly, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. So we're going to be looking at chapter 5 tonight to conclude our study on the book of James. And there's, we're going to break it down into three uh, sections here. Uh, in the first of six verses, we're going to go through those rather quickly because it's focusing on basically the oppression by the rich, and their coming doom. And we're going to take time to read it because it is God's word, but we're going to just make a few brief comments on that and then move on to the two other areas that I want to focus on a little bit more. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 1 of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
that you will have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath or the Lord of hosts. You have lived in the, on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, as you look at this particular little passage, it's interesting here, he's pointing out basically to believing and unbelieving Jews how important it is to avoid, <coughs> avoid worldliness, particularly in relationship to wealth and riches. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that condemns a person who has wealth. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. And we know throughout the world, uh, probably no one has more wealth than the people who live in this particular country. You know, I've been to a lot of different foreign countries on mission trips and things, and it, it just saddens your heart and really makes your stomach burn when you stop and see how many people have to live in this world. In fact, I can recall one time uh, having a street meeting, and we're out here with some people we had witnessed to who had been saved, and they're all gathered together for this, what we call a, a outside meeting. And we were singing a song that I was just convicted by tremendously as I was singing it. And it is, I would, I'm satisfied with a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. I think most of you know that song. And as I'm sitting there singing it, and all these dear people were singing it, I remembered as I was singing, you know, I just got through going to their homes, which were little 12 by 12 huts. Dirt floors, hammocks to sleep in, chickens, pigs, dogs running through the house, garbage out here, but kids eating with bloated stomachs. And here I'm singing, I'm satisfied with a cottage below. And I thought, Bob, what a hypocrite. You've got this beautiful three-bedroom ranch home in Michigan on a nice big lot with all kinds of beautiful things. And here I'm singing, I'm satisfied with a cottage below. I can't sing that song, at least that verse of the song, anymore. Because, you see, riches on earth are so unimportant. These dear people who had accepted the Lord had nothing. And yet they had a much bigger smile on my face singing, I am satisfied with a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. And, you know... James is concerned here about the importance people place on riches in this particular world. So what he does, he, both, he warns both the, the dangers of worldliness and the divine judgment that awaits those who misuse the gift of riches and wealth. Now, as for the unbelieving Jew and, and, and mankind in general, he talks about their coming doom as a twofold reference. And like I mentioned, we're not going to go through, you, you can tell from the six verses we've read what the inference is here. But when you stop and consider the foolishness of doing this, you know, to the Jews he was writing to, they had forgotten, evidently, what the prophets had written in Isaiah and in Zephaniah. And that was what was going to happen in 70 A.D., 
how these nations were going to come in and conquer them and take everything they had. And he's saying to them, in essence, you know, all this stuff you're trying to store up and get richer and, and these worldly goods, do you understand? 20 years from now, if you believe the scriptures, and of course it did happen exactly as these two prophets prophesied, all of these things will be taken away from you and you will have nothing. All your riches will be theirs. You know, that's the way it is with the riches of this world. Now, I know it's nice to have a little money. It's nice to have a nice home. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to understand something. The Lord is going to hold us accountable concerning the way he has blessed us. And I couldn't help but think of myself, what a hypocrite I was in that time. And, you know, it's all in light of basically what the, the day of the Lord, which, of course, is the coming of the Lord in the future. And as you look at the statement I just made concerning A.D. 70, that actually happened, you know, to the letter. It's amazing how many prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures, literally over a hundred and some, that were literally fulfilled to the degree, every nth degree that was prophesied. And you know, all the prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ, they're going to happen. Every last one of them, just like the prophecies of the Old Testament were. And you know, in essence, he's speaking to the unbelieving Jew, particularly, but the uh, believing Jews as well, concerning the 70 AD period. But, you know, it goes a little bit further than that because, you see, it kind of implies that a later time is coming after, during the Great Tribulation and when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in power and great glory, oh, all the riches of this world are going to be nothing. See, the terrible things are going to fall upon those who place all the emphasis about things in this world world. And we know we just got through saying it is well with my soul. You know, it's not well with my voice right now. That's okay. It's well with my soul. We have just got word that a cousin of mine fell and broke his back in Florida. He's already broken I don't know how many bones and has so many problems already. And I'm sure he's in a lot of pain. But you know, I also know one thing. He has something he is rejoicing in more than the pain that he's dealing with. And that is, it's well with his soul. Christ is in his life. And, you know, we've had a, a couple here that lost parents in the same family. Well, yes, it's a time of grief, but, you know, it was well with the souls of those who went to glory. And it's well with the souls of those who are left behind. You see, life is fleeting. You know, what James is basically saying is, you know, don't get so hung up on riches in this world. It's far more important what your relationship is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, the suggestion here, too, is, you know, what happened in 70 AD will happen again only on a much larger scale. And it's going to happen. And woe be to those who have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I'm so thankful I don't have to worry about that. 
But I know too many people that if the Lord came today, and it could happen yet, my heart would grieve for them. You know, as a Christian, I am looking forward to the Lord's return. But on the other hand, I can appreciate that he is faithful, he is merciful, he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, if the Lord would come today, how would you like that? Yeah, I know many here would. I don't know if all of you would here. I don't know all of you all that well. But you know, it's a marvelous thing to know that our hope is not in the things of this world. Don't ever get caught up in the things of this world. If the Lord has blessed you, well, then use it as unto the Lord. And of course, there's just a couple of, of things that he points out here, particularly uh, in these first six verses. The sins of the rich are mentioned. One is hoarding. And of course, we know from Matthew chapter six, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Don't hoard what you have. The second thing he says, don't acquire your wealth by or at the expense of other people. And you know, uh, Michigan is somewhat of an agricultural state, but not like California. But I have driven through enough of the agricultural parts of California to know, as I look out in those massive fields, and see the people who are out there working. There's no question in my mind, they're not getting paid big bucks. But somebody is. You see, there are those who are getting rich at the expense of others. A common thing, not only here, but throughout the world. And of course, in verse 5, luxurious living without regard to those in need. And I know you have a more of a problem here in California than we do in Michigan, because Michigan isn't a place where most street people want to live. They could do that for a couple of months. <laughs> but most of the time, they freeze to death. And you know, and I hear so many negative comments. And I, I understand there's, there's all kinds of sides to these stories. But you know, as a child of God, uh, your heart has to go out to people like that. And we make it a very common effort, although we don't see quite as many as we used to, but we quite often would stop and give them money, but we'd always have a track or something in it where we could share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have needs. People take advantage of those many times who have needs. Now, may we uh, use what the Lord has blessed us with to his honor and glory. And the reason I think that's important it is, you know, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ someday as Christians. And we're going to be given an account of a lot of things. And I think from the context of these few verses, one of those things is how you use what the Lord blessed you with. I think that's enough said about that particular area. I think the, the passage itself and those few comments should be sufficient. So let's read verses 7 through 12 now. And this is being patient in view of the coming of the Lord. And, of course, we're talking particularly to Christians here about being patient about the coming of the Lord. If there's anyone here who is unsaved, it's not patience. It's a reality. You better get ready for the coming of the Lord because he is coming again. 
Now, we don't know the day, the hour, just as well. <laughs> but he's coming. As sure as he came the first time, he's coming the second. So let's read verses 7 through 12. Therefore, be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned or judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the... Uh, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Again, God will bless the reading of his word. Now here, the emphasis is being patient in view of the coming of the Lord. And in verses 7 and 8, after you know, declaring certain judgments that await those in verses 1 through 6, James now moves on to encourage primarily the Jewish Christians to be patient. Long-suffering is a rendering of that word patience until the coming of the Lord. And of course, what it involves is resulting in self-restraint. And as somebody expressed it, he put it this way, and I thought it was worth sharing, this idea of long-suffering resulting in self-restraint. If the, if the all-holy God, faced with the enormity of human sin, is patient, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, so also should Christians, Christ ones, be patient in the face of the injustices of human life. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to have to take a drink. Sorry, I can't share. <coughs> uh, I, I mean, I thought about that to get my train of thought back here quickly. You know, we get so impatient, and Christians get so impatient with the Lord's return. And part of the reason is we look at the world today, and what do we see? Well, we've seen a plain mess. It, it, the world is in a mess. It's a terrible place to be living, in all honesty. I, I don't think there's any place on the face of this earth where you could really go and be comfortable and happy and content totally in living. And, you know, I, as a next school teacher, the things that I'm now seeing in schools, these are things I never, ever worried about. Ever. It never came into my mind. When I was a student, it never came into my mind. And, you know, what's taking place today is, you know, it's just terrible. But, you know, you look at places like Syria, what's going on there. And you look around the world in general, this world is in a mess. And that should tell us something. Because scripture says, as it was in the day of Noah, this is the way it was, the same way, such wickedness, so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man. You know, as you look at the world today, there's no question, as we have read here, 
The judge is at the door. He's ready. We don't know when it's going to be. But as you look at what's taking place in the world today, you read about the prophecies and scripture about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's really nothing left to be fulfilled. Everything is ready. It's just a matter of when the day will be, and only he knows that. And, you know, as Christians, I, I often even think myself, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord would just come right now? And, you know, and you as a Christian would say, yeah, amen. But think beyond that. Because, again, you see, you have to be patient, long-suffering. Because, you see, the Lord is. He's not willing that any should perish. You know how many untold millions and billions of people would perish if the Lord came today? Does that even bother you? You know, it should. We have people in our own family who don't know the Lord. They know all about it, but they refuse to accept it. We keep praying that the Lord will open their eyes to the truth and they will respond and accept the Lord. So someday they will be with him. Because if the Lord came today, they wouldn't be. They would be left waiting for the judgment that lies ahead for Christ rejectors. So, you know, the Lord is in essence saying to them, you know, I want you to be patient, long-suffering as you look at the world today and where you're living. But on the other hand, keep in mind the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this should be our motivation. Now, the word coming here is the root parousia in the Greek. It is used by Peter. It's used by John. It's used by Paul and Jesus himself with reference to his appearing in glory. And, of course, that can refer to the rapture or his second, uh, Christ's second reign, or it could refer to both of those. But the point he's trying to make is, you know, the Lord is coming back in glory. The first time he came, he came to die, that you and I might live. Praise God he did. But when he comes back the next time, he's coming in power and in great glory, and it's going to be totally different. I'm looking forward to the parousia, the rapture, because I'm going to be raptured. I'm excited about that prospect. And I'm looking forward to when he comes back in power and glory a little bit later on near the end of the tribulation because I'm going to be coming back with him to rule and reign in this earth. You know, it's just a marvelous thing for us to understand. Yes, the Lord is coming, but James is warning us here. Be long-suffering and patient. Don't get discouraged. Yes, I know it's a terrible place to live the world today. It's only going to get worse. There's nothing that's going to... The only thing that can change what's taking place in this world today is one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back, things will begin to change. There's nothing that mankind can do. It has been proven over and over and over again, and it's continuing to be seen. There's nothing I see in any aspect of the worldly system that gives me any hope or encouragement that things are going to get better down here. So we are to look for the Lord's return. 
But you know, the motivation for us to live in expectation is that we know it is getting close. And that's why it's not just waiting for the Lord, it's living in great expectation of that day when he will return. Now, just to, he gives you a very simple example of what it means to wait with great anticipation. And he uses the example of the farmer. And of course, the farmer needs to have patience. He has to be long-suffering. Again, like I mentioned, California is, is one of the, I think, probably the greatest state for agriculture in the United States. But it's not the only one. As we draw, used to drive back and forth from Michigan to California, it's amazing how much farmland we drive through. It's just unreal. The vast majority of what we drive through is either wasteland or farmland, and then you have a few big cities here or there. But you know, the, the farmer has to wait for a period of time. And it talks here about the early rain and the latter rain. Now the early rain, of course, is needed by the farmer. At this point, the farmer has plowed his field, he's planted the seeds. Well now what does he need to happen? He needs to have rain come because the rain germinates the seed. If they don't get rain for a long period of time, that seed will die, dry up and just die and it won't be worth anything. So they're, you know, they're praying for that early rain. But then, of course, they're also praying for the latter rain. And, of course, that's to bring the crop to maturity. And that doesn't mean just one more big rain shower at the end. It means the ongoing confidence that the rain is going to keep coming. So when it gets to harvest time, there's a vast harvest. Now, see, we could understand that. It's a simple analogy. Well, in all honesty, our expectation for the Lord's return is, should be just as simple in our mind's eyes. The Lord says, look up, your redemption is drawing nigh. Behold, I am at the door. He's coming soon. You know, the farmer's patience, confident expectation, you know, he doesn't get the crop the day after he sows it. He has to wait. And we have to wait with confidence and expectation as well. And you know, in verse 8, it points out that likewise, our patience is to be firmly grounded upon the constant and constant expectancy of our faith in the Lord's coming. I hope you are. You know, it, it's easy to say, but you know, the truth of the matter is, if you want to be honest, do you really think the Lord's coming today? Well, I say, well, I know he could. That's, that's not what I asked you. Do you honestly think he's coming today? And I think if you would be honest, you could have probably say, well, no. I mean, after all, it's 7.15. I don't think he's coming today. And, you know, we live many days like that. We talk about the Lord's coming. We talk like we're living in expectation of it. But in all honesty, we don't. You know, we watch and wait. But it's, we're focusing on the waiting. We're not focusing on the expectation. And why is it so important we live in expectation of the Lord's return. Because scripture tells us that's what purifies your heart and life. 
if I honestly thought the Lord would be here before 12 o'clock tonight, and you honestly thought that, how different would the next five hours be? You know, it's important we understand we should live every day as that this could be the day. And if we do that, we won't be living in a worldly setting. We aren't going to be absorbed with our riches and the things of this world. We'll be focused on him and the joy that will be ours when we are in his presence. Now, <clears throat> I want to move on to verses 13 through 20. The prayer of faith and the life of faith. And this is one of those passages which has caused an awful lot of frustration amongst believers. A lot of false doctrine has come about as a result of this particular passage. But let's take a moment to read it. It emphasizes the prayer of faith and the life of faith. So starting here with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and he is committed, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses or sins to one, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like yours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, again, this is a very interesting passage. And I've learned over the years in studying and preparing God's word, when you look at any section of scripture, you have to look at the context in which it is given. And we're going to have to look at this passage in the context in which it is given, not only here in chapter 5, but the whole book of James. What has been the emphasis in the book of James? Spiritual maturity. That was his concern. He's not talking about the physical at all, really. Oh, he's giving you some hints how you're to live. But the bottom line is, Everything he wrote to these Jews, because they were struggling spiritually. And in essence, he said, it's time to grow up in the things of the Lord. See, grow in the grace of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Become spiritually mature. Right now, you're not. You're wavering back and forth, doing all kinds of things you shouldn't be doing. It's time to become strong in the Lord. That's the context of this particular book, and that's how we have to interpret 
the context of this particular passage. So maybe some of the things I'm going to say tonight you may or may not have heard before, but that's okay. I think it, it, it falls in line with the context of what we've been studying here in the book of James. Now, as we have read through that passage, you would notice that the key word here is faith. The object of faith is the key idea. All right? The key word is faith, but the object of faith is the key idea that's before us. So it's faith in who? God. All right? Faith is the word, but the object of it, the most important part, is God. It's the faith you, faith you place in God. Now, we're all familiar, I should, I'm sure most of you are, with Hebrews 11.6. And, of course, there it refers to Enoch. And we know that it says, Enoch walked with God, thus he pleased God. And then you look at the, that verse and break it down into two parts. It starts out with, without faith in God, it is impossible to please God. See, it's not just without faith it's impossible to please God. It's without faith in God. Is possible, impossible to please God. And we know that from the second half because it says, he who comes to or before God must believe, have faith that God is, and have faith that God rewards those who diligently seek or approach him. And that would be both in prayer and in your walk with the Lord in this life. Now, in James chapter 5, verse 11, a paraphrase of this would go this way. The prayer of a man or woman whose heart or life and walk is right with God works wonders. I refer to that passage this morning. The fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. But again, the paraphrase might make it simple to some people who don't follow that language. The prayer of a man or woman whose heart, whose life, whose walk is right with God God works wonders. So we're talking here about the prayer of faith. In verses 17 and 18, we have Elijah is given as an example. And of course, Elijah was a righteous man who walked by faith in the righteous one. And thus his prayers were prayers of faith in the righteous one. So from this, these two particular individuals, we see the importance of Faith, but more importantly, the object of our faith. We all have faith. You sat in that seat tonight having faith that would hold you. You probably didn't think anything about it. But if you for one second thought it was going to collapse the moment you sat down, you wouldn't have sat down in it. We exercise faith all the time. We know what faith is. But you see, the most important thing is the object of your faith. And when it comes to spiritual things, obviously, it's faith in God. That's where the strength comes from. And, of course, the tongue context of this particular passage, 13 through 20, focuses on spiritual well-being far more than physical well-being. Now, let me say that again. From verses 13 through 20, the focus is on spiritual well-being. How do I know that? Because the whole book of James has been focused on that. 
spiritual well-being. Okay? He's not talking anywhere through here about physical in any way or form. It's spiritual well-being. And, you know, with this in mind, I would just like to make a few comments about this passage because there's a lot of controversy, but it's really needless if you take it in the context in which it is written. Now, such things as faith healing have come about as a result of this passage. All right? But there's really nothing in here that talks about physical healing. Nothing. And then you have another thing. You know, it's interesting. Christian science, to my understanding, incorporates these, this passage as a part of their false teaching. And one that really... Uh, struck me as I was searching the uh, scriptures and reading on this is the sacrament of extreme unction, which is by the anointing of oil to save someone from sin's punishment has come from this. There's all kinds of false teaching that has come from this passage because they take it out of context. Don't ever take scripture out of context. Context is everything in interpreting the scriptures. You start picking a verse out and using it for this and picking another verse out and building something over here, you're in danger. You're taking God's word and changing it and forming it to what you want it to be. Now, we have two different groups of people in verse 13. We have those who are suffering and troubled. And you also have those who are cheerful. Two groups of people that James is referring to here. Now, the suffering here are those not experiencing joy and peace of the Lord in their lives and their circumstances. And what are they called upon to do? They're called upon to pray to the Lord. This whole book has been speaking to Christians who are not walking close to the Lord and experiencing the joy of the Lord and therefore are struggling. And what he's saying to those who are suffering and troubled spiritually, call upon the Lord in relationship to this particular problem. Now, the second group are those who are cheerful. And it's those enjoying the joy and peace of the Lord in their lives and circumstances, and what are they called upon to do? To sing psalms and hymns and praise to the Lord. If you go to Ephesians 5, 18, 20, you read the same thing. You know, the church at Ephesus was called upon to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving praise unto the Lord. And, you know, we heard a lot of that singing tonight. Okay? Now, I wasn't singing. It's not because I didn't want to. I can't sing. I can barely talk. I can't sing a note. But, you know, the words of those songs, my heart was rejoicing. Because, you see, Jesus Christ is real to me. He's important to me. He's in my life. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But, you know, the point is, I seek to walk with the Lord and enjoy his presence. And I do. I enjoy his word. I can't help but sing praises unto the Lord. Okay? So we have two groups of people here. Those who are really troubled and suffering spiritually, and those who are cheerful spiritually. 
And you can definitely see the difference in their lives. Now, as you move on into verses 14 and 15, we get into this word, if any one of you is sick. And, of course, the English translation is not a good one, and that's true in, in many aspects of Scripture. There's so many uh, uh, scriptures in other languages do a much better job in really laying out more truth than what we can get in the English because it takes so many English words to give us the idea of maybe one or two Greek words. And you can't write all that many words. If we had to write every word in English that really would explain what that one or two Greek word had to say, this thing would probably be ten times thicker than it is now. Now, why am I emphasizing that point? Well, the point is this word sick is what's caused a lot of problems, but it literally means to be weak and weary. It's not talking about physical ailments. It's talking about being weak and weary spiritually. And generally, this is used to weak faith or conscience. And let me give you some examples from Scripture where the same word is used. In 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13, it talks about causing a weak or weary brother to stumble. You see, I know from Scripture that all things, oh, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All right? I am not to do things just because they're lawful for me. I may be strong enough in the faith to do this. It's not going to affect my relationship with the Lord. But it could take a weaker brother or sister, and they see that, and it could cause them to stumble. You see, it, don't do anything that would cause a weak or weary child of God to stumble. In, in Romans 14:1, receive one who is weak and weary in the faith. Why? So you can strengthen them in the faith. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. You do not become a weary or discouraged under the Lord's chastening of his children. Have you ever been chastened by the Lord? I have. I've disobeyed the Lord. And boy, I get convicted. The Lord deals with me. And while I'm being dealt with, I am weak and weary spiritually. Until that moment, I get before the Lord and confess my sin, get his forgiveness, and guess what? I'm now once again cheerful, praising the Lord. I didn't do a lot of praising the Lord when I'm weak and weary spiritually. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.30, the result of eating and drinking unworthily at the Lord's table, for this cause many are weak and then sickly, but realistically, that could, and it could be either sickly physically or spiritually, and some even died because they were doing such a terrible thing at the Lord's table. You know, the bottom line is James was not referring primarily to the bedridden, diseased, or the ill. He primarily wrote to those who had grown weary, who had become weak, both morally and spiritually, in the midst of suffering. And these are the ones who should call for the elders the spiritual leaders of the church. And the elders are to pray over them. What does it mean to pray over them? You pray with them, or excuse me, pray for them and with them. You pray for, with them with the idea that you're dealing with, you've got to come to a confession of sin for what's going on in your life. 
And once you get to that point, you pray for them that what? That they will be restored to, in the Lord so they once again can walk and become cheerful. Well, our time is gone. I had a, little, a few more things, but not an awful lot more. The bottom line is really this. The weak and weary of verse uh, 13, the afflicted ones, will be restored and become once again cheerful, the latter part of verse 13, enjoying the joy and peace of the Lord in their lives and circumstances. Well, our time is gone, so it's time to wrap this up. As with all the other chapters, we have just basically touched upon it, but I hope there's been enough, again, to get you really thinking about what the Word of God is having to say. And I would really encourage you to study this last few verses, because, again, you're going to run into people who have taken this way out of context, and all kinds of terrible doctrines have come to light, and unfortunately, people get sucked in to those things. Interpret Scripture from the context of scripture. Well, I trust these, you know, five, six lessons on James have at least stirred your heart to do a little bit more work in the book of James. We haven't exhausted it by any stretch of the imagination. But it was very helpful for me. I did a lot of confessing when I studied this book. A lot of repenting as I studied this book. The Spirit of God spoke to me through this book. And he will speak to you if you really spend time and let him speak to you through this book of James. Very practical book. And it will enable you to become spiritually strong. And that's what the Lord wants. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for your word, for the instruction we receive from it. We realize that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce through, even to the marrow of the bone. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that as you convict our hearts of those things in our lives that do not honor and glorify you, that we will turn to you with a repentant heart and once again be in fellowship with thee. We would pray if there's anyone here tonight who has never surrendered their life to Christ, may they understand the urgency and the need to do this before it is forever too late. We just pray for this assembly. We thank you for the time we've been able to be here with them. We commit them to your care and keeping. Continue to work in their hearts and life to your name's honor and glory. And they, may they continue to remain faithful to you, the one who is ever faithful to us. Heart is now with your blessing. Bring us to our various homes in safety. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.